Um, we, uh, we live in a world in which it's uh, very easy to become discouraged and often our attempts to overcome such feelings only lead to temporary relief at best. I love the story that I heard of a, a man who was observing a woman in the grocery store with her three-year-old uh, girl in her basket. She was pushing her around. And as they passed the cookie section, the child asked for cookies and her mother told her, no, you can't have any cookies. The little girl immediately began to whine and to complain and to moan about it. And the mother said quietly, now listen, Ellen, she says, we just have half the hours left to go through. Don't be upset, and it's not going to be long before we're finished. So the mother passed again in the candy aisle, and of course the little girl began to shout for candy. She was told she couldn't have any. She began to cry, and the mother again said, now, 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 Ellen, listen to me. Don't cry. There's only two more hours to go, and then we'll get out of here. And the man again happened to be behind this pair at the checkout, where the little girl immediately, as you can imagine, began to fuss and to moan and to groan about buying some gum and and, and when she was told no, she threw this terrible tantrum and threw a major fit. And the mother patiently said, she said, Ellen, we'll be through this checkout stand in five minutes. Then you can go home and you can have a nice long nap. Well, the man followed them out to the parking lot, stopped the woman and complimented her and said, I couldn't help noticing how patient you were with little Ellen. And the mother looked at him and said, my little girl's name is Tammy. I'm Ellen. <laughs> I like that. Kind of like trying to psych yourself up. You know, you ever been discouraged and been at that point where it's like, I'm trying to figure out some way that I'm not going to be discouraged today. Well, in our ongoing study of the book of Romans, we've come to one of the great chapters in all the Bible. And if you've got your Bible, turn with me to Romans chapter 8. But before we look at Romans 8, Romans 8 is an answer to the question uh, that's raised by the Apostle Paul found in Romans chapter 7. And if you've got your Bibles, let's look at Romans chapter 7, the question that's asked. In verse 24 is what lays the foundation for what we're going to find in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 7, if you'll recall, we, we, uh, we, were, we were proposed this question, or the Apostle Paul posed this question, and he said, Wretched man that I am, he said, who will set me free from the body of this death? And if you recall, Paul struggled, as do all believers, by the way, with sin. And as a believer in Jesus Christ... He asked God, he sought his wisdom as to how he could find freedom from such a struggle. In fact, the battle was so exhausting and so real that he used the word wretched when he says, O wretched man that I am, the word wretched has to do with that of a word that was used of those who were in actual physical combat. It was to the point of exhaustion at the end of the battle of the day. When you were so tired from what had happened that day, you were so exhausted that a soldier couldn't even reach out and get something to drink or something to eat. And so Paul vividly gives us or paints this word picture that for many of us, the battle with sin on an ongoing basis is so real and so intense that it's like we're exhausted by the end of every day. And he asks the question, who can set me free? And, and we find that Paul's freedom, as well as our freedom, is found in the words that he shares in verse 25, which is this. Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on one hand, I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh, the law of sin. And he says that the answer is found in his relationship to God through Christ our Lord. He says, thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Because in Christ we find the refuge that, the, the, the refuge that we're looking for from the battles of the ongoing struggle of living a life that's pleasing to God while still struggling with being tempted to do the wrong thing. He's saying this truth then is explained in great detail for us in Romans chapter 8. Now, if you remember the last time we got together, we learned that those who are in Christ are guaranteed certain freedoms that are associated with being alive in Christ and dead to sin. And we examined two of those last time we were together in verses 1 through 4. We found that those who are in Christ are free from judgment. We're free from judgment. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you recall, meaning being free from judgment or no condemnation means that we're free from the punishment of God where he has to enact or exact punishment because of sin. There's a price that must be paid for the violation of God's standards. Man broke God's law, therefore if God is just, he must, what? Enact justice upon those who have violated his standard. No different than the world we live in. If somebody breaks the law, there must be some form of retribution or punishment enacted so that that violation can be found to be just in the eyes of society as a whole. And if God is a just God, there has to be a price that must be paid. He says, those of us who are in Christ therefore have no condemnation. We won't face punishment because Jesus Christ took our place for those who believe on the cross. If you remember the great verse of this particular study is that I am not ashamed of the gospel. 
for it is the power of God unto salvation for all those who believe. And that's the qualifier. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's a power of God unto salvation for those who believe. Now, for those who believe, there is no condemnation. For those who do not believe, then we are already condemned. The Bible says in John 3, 16 through 18, the world is already condemned. That in Adam all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God and everyone's guilty before God. And that's just the way that it is. Whether we like it or don't like it, that doesn't change the fact or the truth. So we find that we're free from judgment. There's no condemnation. The second thing is we saw that we're free from defeat. As far as falling into sin on an ongoing basis, God has freed us from the defeat that we found that was true of our life before we came to know Christ. We had no power or strength to somehow or another stop doing the things that we found that we were doing on a regular basis that we learned were wrong before God. But through Christ, I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. And with the power of the Holy Spirit in my life, I become aware of what is wrong before God. And He also gives me the strength to do that which is right, because I know what is also right. Anytime a believer chooses to do wrong, we do exactly that. We choose to do wrong. We don't sin in ignorance any longer as a believer, because the Spirit of God reveals to us that what we're about to do is wrong before God. We do what we do because we choose to do that. And that is a huge difference between being in Christ or being in Adam, as the book of Romans pointed out. Those who are in Adam are dead, to their, are dead in sin. They don't know the difference between right or wrong. They do what comes naturally because they're sinners. And therefore, they don't understand. Now, don't misunderstand. There are things that we can do as non-believers that are wrong before society. And therefore, we may look at that and say, the consequences of this action are I might be arrested and go to jail. Therefore, I probably should choose not to do that. But for those things that are moral in nature from the standpoint of, hey, you know what, this is what God says is right or wrong. The non-believer says, but you know what, there's no consequences that I perceive for what I'm about to do. Therefore, why shouldn't I do it? And that's the difference between being in Adam and being in Christ. That those who are dead in their sins do what they do because it's what the most natural thing is to do. Those of us who are alive in Christ, when we do that which is wrong before God, it is by choice and choice alone. We can live in victory because of Jesus Christ our Lord. Through Him we can do all things. And through the power of the Holy Spirit in our life, we can do that which is pleasing before God. And we need to recognize that and understand that because we live in a day today where people make excuses all the time for their actions. I couldn't help myself. I didn't have the ability not to do it. I just don't have the strength. I'm too weak. But isn't that exactly what Paul was saying in verse 24? What can I do, O wretched man that I am? Man, I'm fighting this battle and I don't have any strength within me. And why am I doing the things that I don't want to do and the things that I know I should be doing, I'm not doing? And man, you know what? I can't do this on my own. And God says that's exactly right. Now I can teach you something. You can't live the Christian life on your own. But you can live it through Christ who strengthens you. I've been crucified with Christ, it's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives within me. What a wonderful truth that is to get to the point in our Christian experience, in our Christian Christian walk, when we realize that, God, I can't live this life in my own strength. I don't have enough strength. Therefore, I must allow you to live through me. Do what you got to do. Not my will be done, God, but yours. That is the the prayer of every Christian of every day. It should be our prayer as we get up in the morning. Lord, today, not my will be done, but yours be done. And I know if I've got to do your will, I'm not strong enough to do it, but I want to allow you to do it through me. That's awesome. That's a wonderful truth. So now we get to what we're we're going to look at today, and that is this. The idea or the the reality that we can find freedom from discouragement.
faith and trust in Jesus Christ, February 16th, 1978. I know that day, according to the authority of the Word of God, that I was born again, that I became a child of God, that I am now a son of God to those who believe in His name. We have a special, intimate relationship, a personal relationship with the God who created us the moment we trust in Christ. That is about as exciting as it will ever get in life. That we would be called children of God. That we would be called the Son of God. That we would be sons of God. That we're led by the Spirit. Notice what he says here in verse 14. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God are what? Are sons of God. The intimacy of following God's leading in our life. Now you start and put it all together and you go, hey, Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, what? Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and what? He'll set your path straight. Just following his leading in our life. Every day when I get up, it's, Lord, you know what? I just want to follow your leading in my life. I'm not sure where you're going to lead me today. I don't, I don't know. I don't understand. But all I know is this, that I'm here to serve you. I've been saved to serve you. That I'm alive in Christ. And I'm going to follow your leading. You're going to bring somebody into my life. I don't know what I should do without consulting you first. Lord, lead me in the direction that you want me to go. And may I be willing to follow. The intimacy that goes along with just being led by the Spirit of God. The protection that we see, the education that we have when God is teaching us, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit of God is our teacher. He teaches us the difference between right and wrong, the consequences of sin and judgment. And He's available 24 hours a day, seven days a week, anywhere that we are, to be our personal tutor and instruction as to how to live a life that's pleasing to God. We are as believers without excuse. We just are. Companionship and motivation. Then when I read through the scripture, when the Bible says, the Lord is my shepherd, man, I know exactly what David's talking about. He leads me. He guides me. He restores me. He directs me. He provides for me. Man, I see God actively involved in every area of my life. What intimacy that is. You know, oftentimes we all take it for granted. No different than a child who takes for granted the things that a parent provides. A place to live and food on the table and shelter and clothing and and money when we need it for this, that, or the other thing. And many times all of us as children, as we grew up and as children of our own, we take it for granted. We just expect it. And And we lose sight of what a wonderful relationship that is to have someone in my life who protects me, who loves me, who guides me, who directs me, who motivates me, who picks me up when I'm down and sometimes puts me down when I'm too far up. You know what I mean? And, and it's that type of relationship that we have with God, and we take it for granted. And we find ourselves, because we take it for granted, discouraged by the things going on in our life. And we forget all about it. Notice the word where he says that you are sons of God. The word son is one by adoption who becomes an heir to the family fortune. Can you imagine what a wonderful truth that is? One by adoption who becomes an heir to the family fortune. Now, I was trying to think, how do we illustrate this? Anybody seen the musical Annie? Huh? I know this is hard for you to believe. I'm going somewhere with an illustration that's not sports related. And, it's, and, you're, all in, and you're all in shock right about now. And it's like, what? Uh, uh, what? But, and, 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 and I'm not even good at it because I'm not even sure exactly all the ramifications of the storyline. But if I remember right, she was an orphan. And she was brought into somebody's house who had a lot of money. And I guess that's Big Daddy Warbucks or Big Daddy Big Bucks. And uh, whatever it was, you know. But the bottom line was that she was an orphan. And she was living out beyond the parameters of this man's world. And he reached out and he touched her. And he brought her into his world and offered her everything that was his. And I think, isn't that exactly the picture of an adoption by God of children and of his children? That, that, that he reaches out to each one of us, and, and you know the day, and you know the time, and you know the place, and you know the circumstances, but he reached out to you when you were outside of that kingdom of his, that empire of his, and he brought you in, and he said that now you have access to everything that is mine. You are an heir of a fortune. Wow, that we're heirs of God. What a wonderful truth that is. You know, and with this new relationship, if you just kind of go down through it, very simply in verse 15, and we see that, guess what? With this new relationship, uh, we've not received the spirit of slavery, leading, leading to fear again. There's no fear. Can you imagine my relationship with God eliminates all fear in my life? Then why am I so discouraged? My relationship with God should eliminate all the fear that I ever have in my life. We're also encouraged to pray. You know, the Bible says that when we we are in Christ, that we become children of God, that we're sons of God, that we now have access to God. 
I mean, it's amazing to me. I read through the Bible that I now, because of my faith in Christ and my position in Christ, I can boldly approach the throne of God that I may seek grace in my time of need. That I have access to God, and so do you if you are in Christ. That you can boldly approach the throne of grace. Man, that was mind-boggling to those who thought God was at a distance. Who can I, who am I that I can ever approach God? If you think about all the pictures throughout Scripture of those who try to approach God, they had to come to Him on His terms and His terms alone. But you know what? It's no different for us. We come to God on His terms, and His terms are what? For those who are in Christ. For those who are in Christ, we have a new relationship. We can boldly approach the throne of grace. For those who aren't, they have no access to God. We need to take advantage of that. We cry out with the words, Abba, Father. The word in the Psalms is used 40 different times as a, as a boy in distress. I like that if you've ever had one of your children find themselves in a distressful situation and they're calling out, you know, Dad! Dad! What's the matter? My leg, my, my leg's stuck in my bike chain. You know, or whatever. I mean, you know, and, and you go through all the different things when our children are growing up and you hear that cry, Help me! You know, to have access like that to someone that'll care. And someone that will be there. Somebody that will hear that cry and respond accordingly. Not just hear it and go, hey, I'm busy. You know, ESPN's on. Sports Center, hang on a second. Are you bleeding or anything? Just put a tourniquet on it. I'll be out there in a minute. You know what I mean? It's like, wait a minute. You know, to have access to someone who cares and responds accordingly. You know, you look at that. It's a wonderful thing. And then look at the confidence that we have before God in verse 17. If children heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. The expectation that we have, if indeed we suffer with him, in order that what? We may be glorified with him. What a wonderful thing that is. You know, as we're going down through this, it kind of lays the foundation. And that's where I wanted to come back to. Because in this passage in Romans chapter 8, that talks about finding freedom from discouragement. What we find is, is that we have hope. And we're going to see the excellence of our hope. And if you've got a pen or a pencil and you want to just kind of make a note, look at verse 24. Oh, actually, it starts verse 20. It says, In him who subjected it in hope, in verse 24, for in hope we've been saved, but hope that is seen is not hope, for why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see with perseverance, we wait eagerly for it. And the whole idea is this. The answer to discouragement in this lifetime is to find hope. We all need hope. And the excellence of our hope is found as we look in the first verse in verse 18, and that is this. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed to us. In verse 18, the Apostle Paul tells us that our hope, the excellence of our hope, is greater than any of our sufferings. The key word that he uses here is worthy. The word worthy comes with it the idea of a scale. If you can visualize for a second the old scales that we've talked about in the past, where you would take a scale and you would, you would put whatever it is that you're trying to weigh on that scale. On one end of the scale, you would put it and you would weigh it. On the other end of the scale, you would put that which should balance that weight, whatever that weight would be to determine how much it is that this weighs in order to determine, in some cases, if you're buying something, how much you would have to pay for something. So if you could picture and visualize in your mind the idea of a scale, this is going to be a wonderful thing to recognize and understand. And that is this. What Paul is saying is this. He says, I, he goes, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's to be revealed. Paul's conclusion is, when I put all the suffering of this life onto this scale, when I begin to load up this scale... And here they are. We'll say they start out even. And then all of a sudden we start to load up on the scale. Physical suffering, illness, cancer, disease, all that goes along with it. Just not feeling well because we're all falling apart. You know, the world is evolving, but why are we all falling apart? That's a really interesting thing. You know, the world's not evolving. Everything's falling apart. And the reality of it is, is that it's winding down to God's conclusion. And as we load up the scale, he's saying, man, I put all this on here, and, and I'm going to give you a comparison here in a second. But before we do that, we need to recognize and understand something that I think will help us. In Romans, I mean, sorry, in Acts, no, not even that. In 2 Corinthians. All right, just kind of running through all the books in my mind. How about 2 Corinthians? Um, let's, let's turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And you can never have too much time. That's what I'm finding out. <laughs> in, uh, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, 
Notice what Paul says here. I love this. I mean, you go, okay, does this guy really understand what I'm going through? My question for you is this. Do you really understand what he went through? You think you had a bad week. I'll show you a bad week or a life. He says in, in 2 Corinthians 11, start with verse 22, we read these words. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they descendants of Abraham? So am I. He says, are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. And, and, and he goes, in far more labors and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Here's a bad week or life. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I've been on frequent journeys and dangers from rivers and dangers from robbers and dangers from countrymen, dangers from Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure upon me of concern for all the churches. Whoo! Man, I'm worn out just thinking about what he went through. But stop and put yourself in his position for a second. Now go back to what I'm talking about. Here's the scale. And he says, I'm putting down all these things. Man, I was, I was shipwrecked. I was almost stoned to death. I was, I was whipped three times, 39 lashes. I, I was in danger everywhere I turned around. I was in constant danger. Man, and the scale is just going down and down. He says, and on top of all that, I was worried about the well-being of those who had put their faith and trust in Christ. Why? Because they're going to go through the same thing that I went through. He says, and as I'm putting all these things on here, loneliness and being isolated, misunderstood and strained relationships, Loss of loved ones and illness and concern for the spiritual condition of people that are lost and are on their way to hell that we care about and that we want to see come to Christ. When I put the guilt feelings of the past that I have and the present struggles that I have with not doing what God wants me to do as opposed to the things I know I should do and I'm putting these all down here and physical deprivation. There were times where he didn't eat. There were times he didn't drink. There were times that he was just physically exhausted and he's loading up the scale, man. Look what he's saying. Here's what's going on here, right? But this is what he says. This guy was a real man living in a real world with real pain, real suffering, real problems. He's not a super saint that we read about and somehow he can't relate to us. Even Jesus himself took on the form of a human being so that he can sympathize with our weaknesses yet without sin. He understands. We've got a God that understands how difficult this world is to live in. And Paul, through, through the words that we read here, says, Man, I'm loading up my scale and it's looking like it's really out of balance. But you know what he says? I don't even consider it worthy to be compared to the glory that's to be revealed. If I throw down all the glory that's to be revealed, whoa! All that stuff just gets thrown off the scale. It's not even worthy to put on the scale to weigh it. It's not even close. It's not going to balance out. It's not going to kind of come this way, sometimes this way, sometimes. He's saying, when I consider the glory that's to be revealed, it's not even worth putting it on the scale. Kick the scale out of the way. We don't need to be discouraged about the stuff that we're going through. We look at that and go, man, you know what? Then why do we find ourselves discouraged so often? Here's why. Because when we're in the midst of our suffering, we oftentimes give way too much consideration to what we're going through, failing to realize that the coming glory that's to come causes us to lose balance in our daily situation. When we take our eyes off of what God has promised us and only dwell on that which we're going through, then guess what? You and I are going to get discouraged big time. It's important for us as God's people to understand that we're going to suffer. Look at Romans again, verse 17. Chapter 8, verse 17. It's important for us to realize that we will suffer. It is heretical to tell people to put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ and all their problems will go away. That is a lie from the pit of hell. That is not true. Put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ and you no longer will be an enemy of God. You'll have peace with God. That is a truth. But your trouble's going away? Hey, let me tell you something. Sometimes they're just beginning. Sometimes they are just beginning. It was almost a week or so after uh, both Lynn and I came to know Christ. It wasn't even a week later that our house was robbed and everything in it was stolen. It was almost like God was saying, Welcome to my family. And I just want to give you a quick reality lesson. We drove up in the driveway and the kitchen drapes are blowing out into the yard. 
And it's like, when we looked at each other, like, did you leave the front window wide open <laughs> and throw the screen up on the front yard? Uh, no, I didn't do that this morning. Did you do that? Oh, man. No, we didn't do that. But somebody else did. And it was kind of like, hey, you know what? It was like God's way of saying, Chuck, I'm just going to take everything in your past and we're just going to wipe it out. Everything that you've held is valuable. Everything that you put your trust and hope in. All your little trinkets and knickknacks throughout your life. We're just going to go ahead and get rid of all that right now. Okay? Because why? We're going to start fresh. And you know what? And I got a great attitude today about it. Um, <laughs> there was a little questioning going on that particular day. But what's interesting is, is that we look at that and go, look, we can promise people what God promises. Our identification with Christ. We're fellow heirs with Christ. And that's a wonderful truth. There's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. We now have peace with God through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We have peace with God. We have the peace of God that surpasses all understanding. We have all those promises, and those are all true. We have forgiveness and eternal life and love, peace, patience, joy, uh, long-suffering. We have all of that. That's all true. We have purpose, direction. We can look forward in eternity in the presence of God. But we also have suffering. We will suffer in this lifetime. And the reason that this is so important to share with you is because it is not taught very often. For indeed we suffer with Him in order that we may also be glorified with Him. Listen to me. Faith and trust in Jesus Christ. I want you to stop and think about something. We live in a world that hates Jesus. Not the Jesus that people talk about. The Jesus that's a good guy, the Jesus that the Doobie brothers say, Jesus is all right with me. GG, Jesus is all right with me. He's cool. He's a good teacher, good guy. But you know what? That's not the God of the Bible that we see in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God in human flesh, He's the Son of God. And the world hates that Jesus. The world hates the Jesus that said, it's only through me that you'll find forgiveness. It's only in my name that you will be found forgiven before God. There's only one way to heaven, and that's through me. The world hates that Jesus because that Jesus is too narrow-minded. Enter by the narrow gate, he said, for the, the way to destruction is broad. That's every road leads to heaven. And Jesus said, no, there's only one road that and you've got to come through that gate to get on that road. And I'm the gatekeeper. And you've got to come through me to get to the Father. The world hates that Jesus. And don't us ever forget that. And guess what the world did to that Jesus? They hung him on a cross. And they crucified him. They murdered him only because he gave up his life. He had, they had no power to do that. But he gave himself willingly. But the world was still responsible for putting him on the cross. They hate that Jesus. And let me tell you something. And when we identify with that Jesus, they're going to hate us too. They're going to hate us too. Jesus said, if you want to follow me, you've got to deny yourself. And you've got to pick up your cross daily. And you've got to follow me. Come after me. But man, there's a price you're going to pay. There's a price that you're going to pay. You know, it's very romantic and idealistic to speak of being a joint heir with Christ and all the goodies that come with the package. You know, in, in the terms of everything that we have to look forward to in the future, which we're going to look at and we're going to see. But I think we're less than honest with people if we don't also tell them the truth about being, you know, identified with Christ and, and the suffering that comes along with that and the pain that will take place as a result. You know, we need to recognize that, that there's a price that will be paid, but we also can rejoice in knowing how it all turns out. You see, it's like watching... Now i got to go back to something I know. It's like watching a sporting event on tape where you already know the outcome. To me, that's the Christian life. It's like watching it and you already know how the game turns out. You already know who wins. It just drives me crazy when I'm trying to tape something and someone will tell me what happened. Hey, you want to know what the score is? No, I'm taping it. Don't tell me. Oh, man, what a great comeback. You know, it's like, it's like going to, a, you know, go see a movie. Somebody tells you the ending. Oh, you know, did you see the perfect storm? Man, I can't believe they all died in the end. Did they? Great. Good to know. Anybody going out to see it? <laughs> Don't waste your time. They all die in the end. 
at least the ones in the boat. <laughs> the ones on shore, they're okay. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> but, but anyway, what's the point? Well, the point is this. When you know the ending, it's not that difficult to go through the process. You, see, you, you hear what I'm trying to say? If we know how it all turns out and we have victory in Christ, then what's the big deal about whatever we got to go through on a daily basis, regardless of the price that we pay, we know that we come out on top. You follow that? It's a wonderful truth. Identification with Christ also means that we'll suffer with him. Which, which reminds me, um, I want to take a minute to do this since we have a couple extra minutes. Uh, and I want to recognize, if you're here today, and, and you were part of those who identified themselves publicly with Christ at the beach a couple weeks ago and were baptized. I want you to stand up. Can you stand up? I mean, you got to stand up. I mean, let's take you took a public stand. Now take another public stand. Okay, come on, stand up. Okay, that's great. Okay. Okay, you can sit down. But 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 the the, the point that I wanted to make is is that you know what there was it was the most exciting thing in the world to be standing out in the water. And I want to, I want to give you like my, my, my mind's eye view of what was going on. And that was when you're standing in the water and you see people who are coming to publicly acknowledge their faith in Christ, to be baptized, and you see them coming and you look back from our, my perspective, and I'm looking back, and I see all these people that are 60-some people plus all their friends and family and people at the beach. There are literally hundreds of people that are on the beach. And it was exciting to see people who would take a stand and identify themselves with Jesus Christ. I trusted him as my Savior, and in obedience, I'm going to be baptized because that's what he says to do. Publicly professing my faith. What a wonderful truth that is, right? And as I'm looking back there and I'm excited about what's going on, I mean, I can just see the joy of God in heaven and the smile of Christ on his face and the angels of heaven rejoicing. What a wonderful thing that is when God's people are obedient to God. And yet I was also tempered with a reality that I want to share with you that's important for all of us to understand. And it was tempered with the reality that many of you don't have a clue at what it's going to cost you to take that stand. Don't even begin to understand. And you know what? And I understand that because when I came to faith in Christ, I never realized what the big picture was and nobody ever really explained it. See, but Jesus always took the time to say, you know what, you wouldn't build a house without calculating the cost. He said, you, you can't really be a disciple of mine until you realize exactly what it is you're saying yes to. Because when you say yes to Jesus, you're saying no to everything else. That cost that is involved. See, and the disciples often said, well, Lord, but we gave up everything to follow you. What's in it for us? And Jesus would just laugh and say, you know what, a hundred times whatever you gave up. The point is, whatever we give up, God is going to replace hundredfold at least and a thousandfold and a millionfold because there's no comparison to what God has to offer. But as I was looking, I began to realize that, you know what, there's a price that's going to be paid because I know, having paid that price myself on several occasions, things that we don't even begin to realize that come with the package of coming to, to terms with Christ. Some of us will be disowned by our family. Some of us will be rejected by friends that we've known for a lifetime. Some of us will be disinherited by family. Some of us will be uh, persecuted by friends and family because we've turned our back on the religion of our, of our parents. Some of us will be persecuted the moment that, for example, that you have a child and your family comes from a background that says you've you got to baptize that baby or that baby will be lost for eternity. And you say that's not the truth of the Bible. You know what? That, that it's only faith in Christ in which we're saved and outward expressions of religious rights don't make us right before God. And all of a sudden we're put to the test. But how can you do that to your grandma? How can you do that to your grandfather? How can you break their hearts like that? You know what? Just go through the motions and please people. Don't take a stand for Christ. There's a price that we'll all have to pay. You'll go back to school and you're going to be with your friends and they're going to be doing things that you used to do and now you can't do it anymore because you know it's wrong before God. And you're going to have to make a decision on whether or not you're going to do what's right before God or you're going to continue to, to bow down to the peer pressure that comes along with those who don't know Christ. And there's a price that you're going to have to pay. You're going to be persecuted on your jobs for taking a stand for Jesus Christ. You're going to be asked to lie and to cheat and to steal from your customers. And you're going to have to take a stand and say, I can't do that as a Christian. And they may say to you, then you know what? Then you can't work here anymore. 
I see guys that come to baseball chapel and who, who play on teams where the coaches or management or owners can't stand Jesus Christ and they hate them and they hate Christians, they hate Christianity and they got to make a decision. Am I going to publicly be identified with Christ while I'm on this team and make a difference for the kingdom of God? Am I going to shrink in it and when no one's looking to chapel or am I going to take a stand and walk in with my head held high because I know whom I believed and I know that he's able to, give, to keep that which I've given him against the day of God's judgment. I'm going to walk in and I'm going to take a stand and I'm going to invite my teammates I'm not going to be embarrassed by any of that or are you going to go well you know what that's just I shouldn't mix that I'm not going to mix religion in workplace or religion in my family and we get together we can't talk about Jesus Christ we can't talk about anything that has to do with spiritual things because it just causes people to get upset so I'll just be silent and let them all go to hell there's a price that every one of us are going to pay. And it raises the question that we ask ourselves, and that's this. You know what? Well, why should we tell people about Jesus Christ? Why should we ask them to put their faith and trust in Christ? Because if they do, all of that trouble is going to come with that? We shouldn't do that to people. We shouldn't cause them to have to worry about their families disowning them or disheriting them or their businesses not liking them and maybe even putting them out of work. We shouldn't cause all that grief in people's lives. And it raises the question, why share the gospel with anybody at all? The reasons are threefold. Number one, don't ever forget that it's the truth. And the truth of the universe is God exists and God has a plan and his program is undeniable. The second thing, and we've got to remember, is we dare to invite people to, to, to we dare to uh, challenge people to invite Christ into their life because without him, they're lost. Without Jesus Christ, people are lost and condemned before God and ultimately will end up in an eternity separated from God in hell. That's why we challenge people to consider the claims of Christ and invite them to invite him into their life. You know, what's interesting is we live in a world today where Christian terms are all counterfeited. You ever notice that? It's like somebody says salvation, well, what does that mean? Somebody says, I'm a Christian, what does that really mean? Somebody says a term and you go, what, is it? what are you really talking about? Somebody says Jesus and you go, what Jesus are you talking about? You know, and it's almost like there's so many counterfeit terms today, you've got to wonder what exactly is it that you're talking about and define it for me so I know we're talking about the same thing. But I heard a young guy who had just given his life to Christ uh, not too long ago. And in a prayer that he was praying, it really, it really hit my heart what he was saying. And there were two words that he used in his prayer that cannot be counterfeited. And they are the words lost and hell. There is no counterfeit for those words. And though counterfeiters that are out there, they never talk about people being lost, and they never talk about people that are going to hell. Why? Because how do you change that? How do you soften that up? How do you give a spin to that? Lost in hell. And it dawned on me that, you know what? That's why we dare people and we challenge people to trust in Jesus Christ. Because they're lost and they're going to hell. How dare we do that? Those who do not accept Christ are lost for eternity. That's how we dare to do it. We dare to proclaim the gospel because it's truth. We dare to proclaim the gospel because apart from the gospel, people are lost. And we dare to proclaim the gospel because we also know there's a wonderful ending to the story. And that's exactly what he's saying in verse 17. If children heirs also, heirs of God, fellow heirs of Christ, if indeed we suffer with him in order that what? we may also be glorified with Him. That we may be glorified with Him. Isn't that a wonderful thing? No sufferings amount to anything when compared to the truth. No sufferings amount to anything compared with the lostness of the lost. No sufferings amount to anything compared with the glorious future aspect of our salvation. And that's exactly what's being introduced to us now, and that is exactly where we find our freedom from discouragement. As we've been going through, remember when Paul's speaking in Romans 1, 16 and 17, the salvation that he was speaking of there involved three things. Not just being justified before God, which it does, which is in verses uh, chapter 1, 18 through 4, 25, which we've already seen. Those who put their faith in, in, in Christ are justified before God. We're declared righteous. Then we've been talking about being sanctified which is becoming more and more like Christ and being freed from the very presence of sin in this world. We're freed from the condemnation that comes with being a sinner because we've trusted in Christ. We're now freed from the very presence of sin in this world where we struggle with, one, with, with the, the battle that goes on. 
And now what he's talking about and what we're going to be introduced here is a wonderful truth and it's called glorification. Justification, sanctification, and glorification has to do with what we have to look forward to as believers in Jesus Christ. And that's what we find as we look into the, the, the word where he's talking about the expectation of our hope is the word looking. Looking. Looking ahead. Verse 19 through 23 says, For the anxious longing of the creation waits eagerly for the revealing of the sons of God. The anxious longing or looking. We're looking ahead. The end of this verse, when you see the verses that we just read, introduced us to this future aspect of salvation, which is glorification. The past of salvation is we've accepted Christ as Savior. We're justified. The guilt of our sin is gone. The present aspect is, is we're sanctified or being sanctified and we're saved from the power of sin in our life. And now as we look to the future, we see glorification, which is we will be saved from the very presence of sin when Jesus Christ returns. The very presence of sin will be eliminated when Christ returns for his people. And that's what he's talking about, looking. What should every believer be looking towards or looking for? Titus 2.13. We should be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearing of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Bible undeniably teaches that Jesus Christ is God. You can't say, I believe in God, but I deny Jesus Christ as being God. You can't say, well, I believe in God, but I don't believe that Jesus is God. Because let me tell you something, the Bible clearly teaches, and Jesus said himself, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, because I and the Father am one. This verse right here says it very clearly. We should be looking for the blessed hope and glorious appearance of who? God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Same breath, same words. The appearance of God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is God. And there's no denying it through Scripture. And we need to recognize that. Every one of us as believers should be looking for that great day, that great hope, is that Jesus is coming back. Now I want you to stop and think about this for a second. When you find yourself discouraged, ask yourself this question. What am I focusing on? Where are my eyes trained? What am I looking at? What am I looking forward to? And the reality is this. You know, Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3, one of my favorite passages says this, that, that we should be fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and the perfecter of our faith. Because when I take my eyes off of Jesus and I look around at my circumstances, guess what's going to happen? I'm going to get discouraged. When I take my eyes off of Jesus and I start looking at how my bosses treat me or co-workers are treating me or teammates are treating me or schoolmates are treating me or my family is treating me or what's going on in the world around us, when I start looking at what they're all doing, guess what? I get bummed out. But if I keep my eyes on Jesus, guess what? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's exciting. It's like going to the end of that movie or going to the end of the game and knowing on tape you already know how it turns out. I'm not nervous at all. Joe Montana was in the Hall of Fame, inducted yesterday in the Hall of Fame, and one of the greatest plays that, that, that you'll ever see, one of the greatest series, is in a Super Bowl where they got the ball back with a little over a minute to go against Cincinnati, and they were 90 yards away from a touchdown. If they didn't get a touchdown, they were going to lose the Super Bowl. And you know what? Man, that guy was focused. And he was focused on the end zone because he knew what he had to do. And you know what? And anybody who is a 49er fan, which I don't happen to be, but it's a great illustration anyway. Um, but, but anybody that knows what happened in that game, you know what? When the game was being played, man, there was nervousness and there was anxiety. But for those who had their faith and trust in somebody that they knew wouldn't be rattled, they were in the huddle and guys were talking at the Hall of Fame yesterday saying, you know what? I looked at his eyes in the huddle and I knew we were going to win. I can't explain that, but I just knew. I looked over and Joe's like this. Isn't this great, guys? This is so exciting. This is going to be so cool. People are going to be talking about this forever. Because we're going to go down the field, and we're going to score, and we're going to win. And guess what? This is going to be one of those things that, you know, a guy's going to use a church someday as an illustration. <laughs> uh, maybe not. Maybe not. But, but it's like, and, and people were rattled, and they were biting their nails, and they were standing up, and they were like, oh, no, we're going to win, we're going to lose. And there was nervousness. But you know what? Now that you know what happened, you sit back and you watch it on replay and you just enjoy what he did. See, that's the way we've got to live our Christian life. We just sit back and we know what Jesus accomplished and we know what he did and we know how it all turns out. So why are we discouraged? 
Why so downcast, O my soul? Put your trust in God. Focus on Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him, what was Jesus thinking about on the cross? The joy that was set before him. You know what that joy was? Our redemption. Those who would believe and trust in him. Defeat of the devil, defeat of sin, defeat of death, and victory in Christ. Resurrection, life that's to come. Eternal life and joy and peace and contentment and forgiveness and reconciliation with God and peace with God, peace of God. All of those things, man, for the joy that was set before him. Guess what? He despised the shame. Those who were calling him names and spitting on him and throwing stuff at him and insulting him. He despised all that and he endured the pain for the joy that was set before him. He was focused on the outcome and not on his circumstances. Was he discouraged by the process? No, because he had his eyes on the finish line. Why are we so discouraged? Because our eyes aren't where they should be. They're not where they should be. You know what? And there are five things that we really need to be focusing our eyes on. And I'll tell you what, when you grasp this and understand this, man, the, the, the discouragement of this lifetime should never become an issue again. But you know what's amazing to me? You're going to be really discouraged because I'm going to quit right here and you're going to have to come back next week. Because I got someone in the front row who's got some place to go. So I'm going to go ahead and, and I'm not, I'm not going to lay that burden on whoever that happens to be over here in the blue dress. But, but, but don't even worry about that because we won't go there. But uh, man, I'll tell you what, this is good stuff, isn't it? It's is good stuff. Oh, come back next week. <laughs> let, let's, uh, let, let's pray. Father, we just love you. We thank you. We fix our eyes on Jesus. God, we know we live in such a world that can just drag us down. Man, I mean, we're talking about a world that hates Jesus, that hates Christians, that, that you know, we're afraid to take a stand, we're afraid of what people think, we're afraid...